to Modern Figures Podcast, hosted by Dr. Jeremy Waysom and Dr. Kyla McMullen, where we are elevating the voices of Black women in computing to inspire the next generation of the advanced technology workforce. This podcast exists to highlight the stories of Black women in computing, to inspire high schoolers and the young at heart, and to dispel the myths and preconceptions about Black women in computing. This podcast wouldn't be possible without our sponsors. This season is generously supported by NCWIT and CRAWP. The National Center for Women and Information Technology, or NCWIT, is a nonprofit community that convenes, equips, and unites change leader organizations to increase the influential and meaningful participation of girls and women in technology. And the Computing Research Association's Committee on Widening Participation in Computing, or CRAWP, endeavors to increase the success and participation of underrepresented groups in computing research and education at all levels. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a special two guests with us. We have Portia Kibble-Smith and Dr. Catherine Picho-Caroga. So Portia is from Kansas City. She's a native, and her current position is that she's the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Carrot. She's also the president of her own consulting business called PKS Executive Search and Consulting, which is an innovative executive search and consulting firm that focuses on MBA graduates and alumni from top-tier business schools who possess a diverse set of experience. She got her Bachelor of Science in Business Administration and Management from the University of Kansas. She has a firm dedication on helping more Black professionals land roles within tech. Other claims to fame, she also helped to launch the Brilliant Black Minds program at Carrot to empower the next generation of Black engineers. And she's worked at other illustrious places such as IBM, Xerox, and Sprint. So we're very happy to have you. I'm delighted to be here today. (laughs) Thank you. And and along with her, um, as I said, we have Dr. Catherine Pichokaroga. She is from East Africa, specifically Kenya and Uganda, but currently she's in Maryland. Um, She has two positions as well. She's the (laughs) Assistant Professor of Educational Psychology in the Department of Human Development and Psychoeducational Studies at Howard University. And she's also the founder of Impact Analytics, which is a data analytics consulting firm in the DC area that provides research services to private and government agencies. She directs the RISE Lab at Howard, which is research in STEM education. She received her PhD in educational psychology from the University of Connecticut, and she has also collaborated with Carrot to help bridge the hiring divide for mm-hmm. Black software engineers within big tech companies, for example, like Google. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for both of you being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Of course. We are excited. <laughs> yes. This has been a long time coming. <laughs> yes, it has been. <laughs> um, some technical difficulties, Ooh. some shipping delays, some, <laughs> you know, all all the all the things that could go wrong. Yeah. Virtual podcast recording have pretty much happened at this point. So I think we're finally gonna get this story out. out and <laughs> I'm really (laughs) delighted that um, we were able to have both of you join. Thank you. So I want to start out by first just asking how you all know each other, because I think that's a really good place to start. All right. 
Well, I'll I'll say I'll start uh, first by saying that you know I was connected to Howard University, and one of the professors there, Dr. Legan Burge, uh, mentioned to me that I have got to meet, you know, I, I, that it, it was imperative for me to meet Catherine, that she was one of the best in uh, at Howard, and that he thought that you know we were going to get along fabulously. Well, he was right on because instantly, mm-hmm. uh, I would say we became fast friends uh, yeah. and it was just a sister connection uh, that mm-hmm. we both had with one another because I think we were both so committed to making sure that there were more, more mm-hmm. people of color, but specifically women in STEM and our commitment to diversity, um, you know, kind of uh, rose above everything else. So mm-hmm. it's that yeah. we were talking about in STEM. I, I think I would agree. Yeah, I think she sums it up really well because uh, <laughs> Dr. Dr. Baj and I have been working on um, some other side projects. And then he mentioned Brilliant Black Minds um, and something that Carrot was doing. And he's like, let's get open a phone call. And I like to think of us as the three musketeers, actually. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Don't you love those kind of organic connections where someone's yes. like, I know somebody you need to meet and you yeah. meet that person. It's like, where have you been all my life? Right, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> And now we're connected yeah. for the rest of our lives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and, and yeah. Uh, we, we so much enjoy doing our access gap survey together too. I mean, just yes. Ooh, tell us about that. yeah. What is that? So um, actually that's why they brought me on the project, right? Cause they wanted to find out um, what some of the factors were that impact um students of color when they're trying to get into the job market, basically, mm-hmm. right? So what are those gaps and what can we do about those gaps? So Dr. Baj was like, oh yeah, I know someone who does, sir, is an expert in survey design and validation. And so mm-hmm. that was what really happened. Um, and so we designed a survey uh, looking at a student's background, like looking at background variables, and then also their experience with tech, their experience with uh, with with interviewing and, and all of that stuff. And we really had to get down to the nitty grit by first and foremost, even asking them, do you know what a technical interview is, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's, hey, technical interview and students are responding and they don't really know what a tech interview is. <laughs> so we're able to kind of just get some of that information, uh, qualitative data and, and, and the quantitative data as well to try and look and see where those gaps were. And so we found that actually early exposure to computer science education mm-hmm. makes a huge difference hmm. um, in terms of uh, the student's trajectory um, yeah. within the field as where they are. And we surveyed, uh, you know, the broad range from like sophomore to senior. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also found out that professional networks are crucial, but I think we all know that, right? So... People who knew at least three to four people felt even more confident. I think that level of confidence in terms of being confident that they could succeed in a technical interview or, you know, get in through the door, like rose to about maybe, I think it was 60 or 70%. Wow. um, Relative to those who had professed to know nobody at all in the, in the tech industry. Wow. So those were some of our key findings that we found. And then, of course, we had the issue with the imposter syndrome and uh, mm-hmm. you know, social identity threat, um, being fa- and anxiety, especially among women. Like women were twice more likely to experience a high amount of anxiety mm. um, wow. b- 
before going into the interview and during the interview as well. So I love this. I think it's amazing that like this is what brought you together Mm -hmm. and this is how you began your journey kind of working towards solutions Mm -hmm. to these problems. And I really, first of all, I gravitate towards this because it's like my (laughs) research space. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll say, I do think, you know, a lot of what you're saying kind of resonates with me in general as someone Mm -hmm. who pursued a career in STEM, right? Mm -hmm. Like pursuing a degree in engineering. And I know Portia, your background has some of these like milestones where you kind of navigated some of these spaces that you're now studying and trying to address and create interventions for. So I would love to get a little bit of like background information just about you. Like how did you grow up? What were your experiences? Did you have a a role model? Uh, I would say that my, um, that Mrs. Maxine Williams who ran our uh, nursery school was a, was certainly a role model for me. She came from an all black town in Bowley, Oklahoma. um, And she was an entrepreneur, a female entrepreneur who started her own, her own business. So I would say she was absolutely a role model for me, but I did not know anyone who was, who worked in the business environment. Uh, my, my mother worked uh, as a, uh, for the U S government. So she was an elevator mm-hmm. operator. Uh, and, then oh, she, cool. and so in, in a big tall building, and I remember, you know, <laughs> riding the elevator, but, you know, and seeing people, but no one of color, you know, mm. carrying a briefcase. So one of the, mm. I will say that one of the, one of the persons that I uh, like to look at as somewhat of a role model ended up being it was on on the Bewitch show. It was it was <laughs> Darren who was the 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 head of the household who carried a briefcase and went to work every day. And yeah. I thought that's what I know that I that's what I want to become. Someone who oh, works wow. in a business office in a tall building, and I carry a briefcase. I make, you know, I lead a team. I make decisions, and I make money. <laughs> so, mm-hmm, uh, for me, uh, coming out of the University of Kansas, I found that the jobs that I applied for were really, uh, or the you know, were the jobs that I applied for were sometimes jobs that were more female oriented. So mm-hmm. while I had a, had a degree in personnel administration, uh, they always I felt like I was always put into a lower job than what I felt like I really could have been or what my white male counterpart was doing. Mm. So you felt like you were being steered towards things that were more like stereotypical women's yeah. jobs. Yes. As an as an example, when I I I quit my first job because I felt like I wasn't going to. Uh, I was working at the newspaper and I looked at what the, the gentleman was making. And I said, well, $40,000 is not enough for me to stay here for two <laughs> years to try to make what you make. So I, right. <laughs> and so I ended up applying for a job at uh, TWA, which was an airline now known as American airlines. And yep. they asked me on the interview how fast I could type. And I thought, well, what does that matter? I mean, I'm applying for a real job. I'm not applying for a secretarial job, but I can mm-hmm. I can out type anybody. So I ended up <laughs> passing, of course, the typing test, and I uh, was given an opportunity to work in a uh, department 
that did claims and insurance. And I found out that I was the only one with a degree. Um, I was the lowest one on the poll, and yet I was the only one with a degree. So I started asking the question, where can I get equal pay for, where can can I, as a woman, get the same pay as what the men are getting? And people kept telling me there was no such job like that. And I continued to ask and ask and ask. Long story short, a a gentleman uh, came up to me and said, I hear you asking people. I believe that if you were in sales, that you would get paid the same thing because they have to give you the same commission as a guy. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, then I need a sales job. So my first sales job was with Xerox. Okay. And so I was really excited about having that opportunity to to go out. You know, what I didn't realize was that not all territories are equal. So, right. you know, giving a a, 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 I was given a territory in a rural community where there were no people of color and I was expected to excel. Well, luckily wow. the, the white people needed, uh, copiers and I had copiers. So, so that, that was a good match. But I will tell you that when I went back to the university of Kansas recruiting for more people to come to Xerox, I got recruited by IBM and I grew up (laughs) with IBM. So uh, I would say that was the, the best turning point of my career was really, you know, to me graduating into a position at IBM. Yeah. And I was at IBM when we, when our first personal computers were launched. So it was back in the early days of the 80s when at one time uh, working at IBM, most women were relegated to sell office products and they were Mm -hmm. not given an opportunity to work in large systems. And that's Mm -hmm. where I wanted to work. And I got an opportunity to work um, on a team that sold large systems. And I would say that we were all very successful. It gave me an opportunity. It was myself and another white female were the only ones in that division that were salespeople, uh, which made it very interesting uh, as I looked around and saw that here's where the money is made in the mm-hmm. sales sales mm-hmm. team, uh, not necessarily the support uh, mm-hmm. a, as much and uh, and how few women there were, but certainly how few black women there were. And so that made me uh, want to make sure that there there was a pipeline of other women and other women of color, uh, especially at at IBM. So So that's a 40-year commitment. It is a 40, yes, absolutely. To seeing this change happen in in the discipline. That is remarkable. And- Oh, I'm excited yes. now. Yeah. That's and that's why that's why I'm still so committed because I still see so few mm-hmm. women of color in leadership positions at tech companies. And so yes. while things have changed, so many things remain the same because if you don't know someone, then sometimes you don't get that opportunity. Mm-hmm. So Portia, I'm curious. So, you know, you've been studying this for a long time and, you know, people have known a lot of the main challenges um, that preclude women and people from diverse backgrounds. But why do these things still exist if these are things that we've known for so long? Yeah. And I think it, it really comes down to a commitment from the top. I think mm-hmm. that you have to have people who are able to move the needle in a position where they are backing, whether it's their chief diversity officer, that they they have to show that 
the commitment to make sure that the team of engineers is more diverse comes from the top. Uh, whether it is unless you do unless you hire X amount, then we're going to hold back on your bonus. That also gets people's attention. Uh, but I think that the 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 leadership piece comes from the very top. So if you have a leader who just says, I just need butts in the seats, I don't care what they look like, mm-hmm. uh, then you know, that's what you're going to get. And people are going to gravitate toward the people that they already know. So mm-hmm. when you talk about uh, well, you could maybe you make a recommendation, you know, a referral. Well, if you have an all-white mm-hmm. team, then they're going to refer people that they know in their network, which is you generally all all white. If you have a, you know, and, and we can say, oh, but these companies come out and they go out to the HBCUs and they try to recruit, but for the most part, they're sending white women. And so white mm-hmm. women are not used to recruiting uh, with uh, at HBCUs. So there in lies another gap uh, because sometimes the students don't feel like they're as sincere. Uh, they don't, mm-hmm. it, it isn't, it is not the same when you send someone who looks like uh, the person that you're trying to recruit. It goes back to the days when I was at Sprint and I said, if we're trying to recruit people to come to Kansas city, we can't send out somebody who looks like the farmer and the son because they already think Kansas <laughs> is a cow town. So you, you've got to make sure that you sit, you, that you send out a diverse group of people. If you want a diverse you know, God. I mean, it goes back to what, what we used to say at IBM, garbage in, garbage out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. you have to make sure that your teams are diverse, that even the people that are doing the interviewing, your 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 interview yeah. loop has to be diverse as well. There needs to be someone there, even if they're not a software engineer, that there's someone there that they can relate to and say, it's okay to come to this company. Because I'm here yeah. and I, I would be supportive of you. Because I think mm-hmm. what I've learned over the years in recruiting is that people buy from people they like. You go where mm-hmm. you feel comfortable. And we need to make sure that at these at all these tech companies, that there there is someone who's in that recruiter seat or that hiring mm-hmm. manager seat that is making people feel comfortable to know that even though and, and you can be honest with people, you can say, we don't have enough black women on our team. And I know we've got to start somewhere. Will you help me at being one hmm. of the first and, and bring others with you. So you have to, you know, that's one of the things that we did at, you know, when I was recruiting at Sprint, we don't have enough black officers, but I've got to start somewhere and I need to start with this group. Mm-hmm. So Catherine, I know that, um, you know, you're in kind of the STEM education mm-hmm. research space, right? Yeah. How does one arrive in that education but STEM-focused area? Personal experience. Okay. Being subjected to or experiencing social identity threat and not knowing that I had experienced that. So can you tell people that are listening that don't know what that means, what social identity threat is? Yeah. So it's basically a psychological um, phenomenon, right? It's like the experience that what that a person of color or a woman, anyone from a marginalized group, when they um, experience anxiety over confirming the stereotype, basically about 
that stigmatized group, then um, they become more, they tend to perform less well than they otherwise would in evaluative context, essentially. So it could be the whole stereotype that women are not good with numbers. And then you find yourself in a situation where you are being evaluated on your quantitative performance or the stereotype that, you know, black people really aren't as intelligent as their white counterparts. They've even done uh, work with uh, white men can't jump, right? So when you put white men on the basketball court and they prime for that stereotype, then they tend not to shoot as many baskets as black people would. So basically, anytime there is a stereotype about any specific group and that stereotype is activated or made salient in a specific context, then members, some members of these marginalized groups will tend to experience a little bit of anxiety and concern over confirming the stereotype, which generally messes with them psychologically and leads them to underperform, which inadvertently confirms the stereotype, essentially, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. type of thing. So I underwent stereotype threat when I was in high school, and I didn't even realize that, you know, I'm from East Africa. Gender roles tend to be very distinct. Um, for my uh, grades 8 through 11, I was in an all-female school, right? So I didn't okay. even really have to contend with, I guess, stereotypes or anything. And I was taking general courses, like a broad base of courses, mm -hmm. um, arts and sciences. But when you get to the last two years of high school, which is grades 12 and 13, because we do have like 12 and 13, it's based off of the British system. Um, then you now have to pick like three or four subjects that you're going to focus on that will be your track when you get to college straight through to whatever career you want to be. Wow. And so if you want to be an engineer, you're going to do physics, chemistry, math, and something else. If you want to be a doctor, you're going to do physics, chemistry, biology, and subsidiary math. Like you literally have to take the courses <laughs> that are going to stream you right through to your career in college, which is very different from here, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that is essentially what happened. Everyone was fine with me doing well as long as I was doing well across the board, right? But when we uh, finished the, the national exams, that would help us kind of figure out where we, we needed to go for the advanced levels or the higher level secondary schools, 12 and 13. Um, some people kind of, you know, generally stronger in one area so it's very easy right because then you get a's in like history economic you know history all these other things so you just know my track is arts or you do strongly in the sciences my track is sciences i did strongly in everything so i could pick what i wanted to do and there in lay the issue because then i'm like i don't know i want to be a doctor i want to be a doctor and everyone thought i was crazy wow. so I'm like what so i chose physics chemistry biology and math and people were like, are you serious? Why would you do that? Like, why don't you just do communications? Like, that was the very first time oh I was actually gosh. hearing. Yeah, girl, that was what was happening. So I was like, why, why do you want to do that? You're so good in literature. You did so well. Why don't you go into that track? Mm -hmm. You can make a very good lawyer. And so people just kept saying this to me. And I actually began to really question, like, okay, yep. you know, what's going on? You could be like this yeah. media person and all of this stuff. But... I kind of insisted I wanted to be in, do PCBM. Mm -hmm. And I got there and class was, of course, challenging because it's physical sciences. But now when it was challenging, now my mind kept going back to what people were telling me. Mm. Where before that was never the issue because I, by the time I was like done 11th grade, I was like so good. I was excelling in chemistry. I mean, I was just like the star pupil. 
and I, I, I could see myself like doing organic chemistry and all this stuff. So now it's like, oh, maybe they're right. Maybe I really don't belong here. You know, now it really began to mess with me. So now I started working really hard. I thought like by working harder, things would be better. But even the people that I was with were like, wow, I can't believe you're doing PCB. Like you really should be doing like literature. So like oh I was getting that from my peers. I was getting that from my teachers. I was getting that from my family members. It was like literally all around. And then the science class was actually quite small, right? It was like almost like an exclusive kind of thing. And it, it, so that <laughs> even made things mm -hmm. even worse because now I'm like, do I really, really belong in this space? Hmm. So I remember my, this guy who taught physics, I'll never forget. I, I forgot his name, but I remember his face so distinctly. I happened to do really, I did less, I really did badly actually on my, um, but the, the very fast like physics, it was a, it's a, physics. a, a physics, it was physics. Okay. Oh yeah. my God. So I didn't do well on it. The guy looked at my paper and he was like, you know, you look bright, but that's not really reflected. Like your your exam score doesn't really reflect that. And like everybody laughed, right? So like now I became wow. even he said that to my face in, in class. In front of people. In front of everybody. And I was no. so traumatized. I don't think I wow. ever recovered from that. Right. Wow. And so it was just like a downhill battle from, from then on. I, like I struggled so much and I felt like I understood what was going on. And I did really, really well on like assignments. But when it came to like exams, I just, my exams, and I'm like, why? Why are these assessments not really reflecting the knowledge I have in my head? Like it took a very long time. So those are like two of the worst years of my life. And yeah, uh, yeah because I felt number one alone. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even feel like I could talk to anyone about it because everybody else, after all, thought I didn't really belong there, right? They'll just tell me, yeah, why don't right. you just drop it? It's still two hours, one semester. Just drop it and like switch over. So I felt lonely. I felt like I didn't belong. I didn't really know what was going on. I really thought that I was the problem and like maybe I should really quit. But again, I'm not a quitter. So I'm like, I'm just going to, you know, do the best that I can. And I did good. I mean, at the end of the A level stuff, A level, I did well. I actually made it to a uh, to pharmacy school. Believe it or not, in the UK. Really? Yeah, in the UK, I got admitted to pharmacy school in the UK. But at that point, oh, I when I got that admission, <laughs> I'm I was like, I am out. Yeah. I don't even know. Like the thought of going through those two years for like three or four more years. Yeah. yeah, I'm like, no, I don't need to be dealing with this. Like, I don't want to see sciences anymore. Wow. So what did I do? I elected to go ahead and do communications, right? Because now that everyone's like, oh, yeah, that fits you better, right? So I kind of slid right into that, hmm. that idea or that mold that this is kind of where I fit because, you know, women are generally good at communicating and you're very good at literature. You will succeed. And so I just went ahead and just did communications and, you know, that was that. But I never really quite felt fulfilled. You know, I did it. And of course, I'm good at writing and all that. So it came naturally to me. But that really wasn't the track that I wanted for myself. Mm -hmm. And so um, it wasn't until like shortly. And then, you know, I started to become very interested. I'm like, I read this really great book called Women and the Gender Divide. Ne mm. Negotiation and the Women Divide. Have you read that book? By, uh, I've heard of it. Early. 
It is. Is it the Shirley Malcolm book? No, it's by uh, Bob Cook and La Chevre. The guys mm. out of Illinois, in Chicago, University of Illinois, I think. The uh, Women mm. and the Gender Divide. And it was about negotiations and all this stuff and how there were all these, you know, disparities with gender. And, and so I was like, you know, for my master's degree, I actually my thesis was actually looking at cracking the, the glass ceiling and how mm-hmm. women, you know, women in male. I actually think I did like a, I think I did Xerox. So it was one of my case studies that I did. Oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was trying to understand, like, you know, what is it? You know, studying all these women who had made it, you know, how do we crack the the ceiling? Is it uh, the book Women Don't Ask? Women Don't Ask. and the Gender mm-hmm. Divide? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. That yeah. book was revolutionary because it really got me thinking. So I did my thesis. And again, I had always been interested in like, gen, you know, genders that relates to like d- disparities and, you know, making sure that we level the playing field. But mm-hmm. I think my ideas got more focused as I, I did my thesis. When I did my thesis and um, we were looking for jobs, me and some of my close friends, I had a really good friend called Stephanie who was looking for, she actually, you know, recruiting, right? So insurance companies, because Hartford, this time I was in, by this time, because I did my undergrad in Canada, moved to the United States uh, for my master's degree and PhD. So I went for my master's uh, at the University of Hartford. And so we had people who would come recruit and all this stuff. And my friend Stephanie, looking back in retrospect, also was suffering from stereotype threat because guess what? Wow. She, she went for an interview. She was doing an MBA. So she went for an interview. Those guys, you know, they interview you on the spot, right? So they give her yep. a really simple math question. She said, mm-hmm. oh my God, I got so nervous. I just, you know, I'm not really that good in math. I bombed it completely, blah, 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 and all this other stuff. And she was just anxious completely. Mm-hmm. So then they make her an offer. And the offer is like 38000 a year. She was so happy to take this offer. She just took the offer. I'm like, Stephanie, girl, you cannot be serious with your MBA. You're taking 38. Because by, <laughs> by this time, by this time, I was reading this book. Right. Because mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, negotiation is the number one thing that kills women. Yep. Like women yep. just yeah. are yep. like play nice like you don't have you know just be grateful like you're even right. grateful that you have the opportunity yeah. and she's mm-hmm. like oh it's a really good program really so grateful at least I'm, I'm gonna have a job after i'm like you could did you negotiate she's like no i said you could have negotiated she didn't <laughs> negotiate so i said to tell her about the book i'm like oh no this is like a big thing so as i read the thing that really struck me the most was that there literally is a program called the bully broads program where women who are leaders who are perceived as being too aggressive are funneled into that program so mm-hmm. it's like why would you tell mm-hmm. me so it's like okay so guys do that they're like when promoted they, they're promoted yeah. they're like effective leaders women do that oh yeah she's a bitch and all of this stuff she's a bully she needs to join that program and get retrained right right yeah so i i wrote to the authors of the book you know i i really asked them all these deep questions and like they wrote me back and i said i have to do something about this so my one of my mentors told me you know you would you really should join the phd get into a phd program i'm like oh no i'm done with school i do not want to be like (laughs) a perennial student like a student for life like i'm not doing that but you know that weekend i sat down and i thought 
I remembered because, you know, my mom, my mom used to be this, I think every black mom was like a disciplinarian, like, you know, even at my age, whatever age I am, like when my mom, you know, I still have that respect, like the sitting, you know, it's just mom is mom. So when we were young, my mom, whenever she disciplined us, she always said, you're going to hate me now, but you'll thank me later. Like when, and the, this mm. thing she said to me, stuck with me, she's like a tree, when a tree is growing, when it starts to bend, okay. If you want the tree to grow straight, the time to fix it is when it's still like a, a little young, you know, it's young and you can like scaffold it and make it straight. But there's no point making a straight tree, a, a, a bent tree straight when it's already grown. It's virtually impossible. Mm -hmm. Point being, I am going to fix you right now and make sure you're straight while you're still young. So we don't have to deal with this when you're an adult. I said, that's <laughs> it. That's exactly what I need to do. I need to find a way to address these disparities when people are young, not yep. when they grow up and they're in their first or second jobs. And now you need to kind of fix them. So mm, I, I was inspired. Yeah. I wrote like 10 pages of ideas of like a curriculum I would develop mm -hmm. um, to be able to kind of like address these issues. And so I began to really, when I talked to my mentor about it, he's like, you have to, you have to get into the PhD program. I was mm. like, well, if that's what it takes, then I guess that's what we're <laughs> going to do. So really doing the PhD was because, like, I had a vision at the end that I wanted to accomplish. And so that was really what motivated me to, like, get, and, like, if this, if getting that PhD is going to be what it takes for me to be able to accomplish what I need to accomplish as far as this curriculum is concerned and leveling the playing ground for not only women, but, like, people of color in this country, then I'm going to have to do what I have to do. And mm -hmm. as I read the articles, because by the time I joined my first year at the University of Connecticut, I had read like a whole bunch of articles and I came across one on stereotype threat. And that's when I realized, oh, my God, I literally was a victim of this phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And it took a weight off my shoulders and it just really made me see things more clearly. And it, it just inspired me to continue to do what I needed to do. So that's the whole long and short story of my stereotype threat experience. No, that's great. That is really good. And like the fact that it is your lived experience, you know, you're not just reading information from a survey. You're mm -hmm. saying, no, I understand exactly how this happens, what it feels like when this happens and how it can be a barrier. Uh, me too. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> like, I, I don't think that I would be doing anything STEM education or engineering education related if my experience had been wonderful mm. and rosy mm -hmm. and fun mm -hmm. and exciting and exhilarating. And mm -hmm. I mean, were the things that I encountered like in the scientific, you know, focus, like amazing and wonderful and exciting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But all the other stuff mm -hmm. that I had to deal with on top of that was so burdensome, so taxing, mm. so heavy. Yeah. That yeah. I just really felt like I can't I I can't let this continue yeah. to be right. Yeah. Yeah, Catherine, one thing that stood out in your story to me was the fact that you excelled at everything. And it was literally this social pressure that made you start to question yourself. It was never a question of your talents and your abilities. It was other people's conception of what they thought you should be doing. And her personality. Because yeah. I had the same thing, right? Like, I was good at all the things. Mm, yeah. But 
I had a different personality where I'm like, if you tell me I can't do something, yeah, right. I'm exactly. gonna show you what I can. Right, do. I'm gonna give you and nine reasons why I can. So that's psycho- <laughs> that's a psychological thing, right? Like that's something that you either have that or right. you don't, yeah. right? It's the flight or f- or fight type syndrome, right? Yeah. And so like some of us run from the situation, and some of us are like, oh yeah, bet, yeah, let's go, let's go, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. It, yeah, it's and I've ex- I've seen that now when I teach, mm-hmm. it's so apparent to me, right? Because I mm. teach statistics, because and then Ooh. again I had to go prove myself. You know, I had to prove to myself that that was stereotype threat. So I took like all this credits worth of statistics in uh, a PhD level and did really, you know, my professor's like, why don't you just get like the second PhD in that? I'm like, no, I don't really need to. Like, I don't really need to. I just need one PhD. But when I was teaching, when I was teaching at the University of Hartford, which is, you know, predominantly white, I had a couple of black students in in my class, right? And they were so terrified of stats. So I had this thing where, like, you know, I'll have a student come work out a problem on the board and this and that, right? So I picked Pam and then I picked another student. So I picked, like, there's this white girl, Pam, that I picked. She went, worked out a problem. She didn't get it right, but I was able to kind of like see the steps and kind of use that for didactic purposes and tell them, you know, this is where, you know, you went wrong. So this and that and try to explain, right, for pedagogical purposes. When I picked the black girl to do the same thing, she worked out the problem on the board, same method, same everything. But at the end of class, the black girl was so distraught. She was like, oh, my God, you singled me out to prove to me. To prove to me that, you know, to tell, to show everybody else that I am like, you know, like a poor student. And she just took it like oh the goodness. whole other like way. Mm. Right? But I was able to understand kind of where she was coming from because one of those psychological um, factors that exacerbates stereotype threat is stigma consciousness. So when you're mm. chronically aware about like, those stereotypes about your group mm-hmm. become even super sensitive. Mm-hmm. So, so that when you're placed in those circumstances or contexts, you become more vigilant looking for clues that are going to confirm to you like what that stereotype is or that people might be thinking that. So I think she's really high on that gender stigma consciousness and it was like interpreting everything through that lens of like, mm. you know what I mean? So I realized what was going on and we had a little talk one-on-one. Right. <laughs> Wow. Well, yeah. And then I was able to tell the class, there's this thing called stereotype threat. So now every time I teach statistics at the beginning of semester, I do talk about stereotype threat. Wow. Because knowing is half the battle. And most of the times you don't know that this is what's going on and it's just psychological. But like once you know that it's actually a thing, it becomes Mm -hmm. less about you and more about the thing and how you can address the thing, essentially. Well, I I will tell you a a quick little story about uh, when I was at IBM and we went through... Uh, training that I was, I was so good at doing the, um, the role play with in the sales process. Uh, you know, I, I'm the I'm the salesperson. I'm selling to someone. I could close the deal. I was yeah. so high that they did not want to give me a hundred percent, so they would give me ninety eight, ninety nine. Really, they said I I just haven't <laughs> met anybody who could do this as well as you. And that was, you know, that was confirmation that, hey, I'm in the right place. However, when it came to taking the test, one of the Mm. things that we had talked about is if you don't, you know, when we, when we left our branch and went down to Texas 
to, to actually take the test, we said, if you don't pass the, the first test, you'll be eating lunch on the plane because they sent you back to your branch office. And that was the case with Xerox as well as IBM. And so yeah, just the, lunch on the that, plane. that I call it the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that I could be successful in taking the mm. test made me so afraid of the test. Mm. And so I did poorly, even though, and you mm. mentioned it earlier, Catherine, that you knew, you knew the answers. Yet mm-hmm. On the test, you didn't, it, it didn't come through that you were, were, that you really knew the answers. And that, that yeah. was the mm-hmm. same thing that happened to me. Test after test, I would make in the seventies, eighties, but you know, mm. never anything close to a 90, barely as, you know, sometimes, uh, uh, mainly in the seventies. Well, then one time my, my boss, uh, back in St. Louis said, Hey, when you go down there, don't worry about the test. I don't care how, <laughs> how bad you do on the test. I don't care if you make 50, it doesn't matter to me. I just need you to do well in the sales calls. Wow. I thought, Oh, I wow. got that. So when, when it came to the <laughs> test, I did the test. And the first time they came back uh, and my the, the instructor handed me the test, you know, unfolded Fold it up. up. <laughs> <laughs> I opened it up and I saw 90 something and I closed it. Oh my goodness. And I handed it back and I said, I'm sorry, that's not my test. Aww, really? And she said, is your name Portia Kibble? I said, yeah. Like, yes, give me my test because I know that's not mine. <laughs> and she says, that is yours. Oh, man. Uh, and that's when I realized, mm-hmm. you know, how, what a difference it makes in having that anxiety. And that's the same yeah, thing yeah. we try to do with Carrot and the Brilliant Black Minds program is yeah. to help students practice the technical mm-hmm. interviews so they don't feel overwhelmed and not, not, and not be able to show their, their skills in an interview, uh, because it makes a difference in feeling the level of confidence that you yeah. have when, you, especially when you know you're going for something that could make or break your your career. So it's really interesting to hear, you know, both of your stories about this and the fact that now you study it and it's such a part of your research and you're trying to create programs and interventions for people to not have to face what you've gone through. So I'm curious, like how much of your own personal experiences and the research that you've done has shaped the Brilliant Black Minds program? And I'll start. Uh, I would say that for me, in one of the things that I, I did in developing the Brilliant Black Minds program is really had focus groups with some of the students mm-hmm. to better understand what were some of the things that they were facing. Uh, and what I learned is that if there is, if if Kyla, you're the smartest one in the group and you apply for a job at Apple and Apple doesn't hire you, then the rest of us don't even try. Oh, wow. mm. You know, wow. because we just feel like Apple isn't looking for one of us, mm. whether we're a group of women or whether we're black, no matter what the case may be, that it just excludes us from even looking at that as an opportunity. It also shared, wow. you know, the students also shared with me some of the, the things that they were finding as, let's say, first generation college students. Their parents really didn't understand what they were going through in order to become software engineers and mm-hmm. were sometimes saying, why are you, Jeremy, why are you spending all your money at, at Howard? You need to come back home and work <laughs> at Amazon 
for $15 an hour like your cousin Ray Ray. Because you're just going into debt. <laughs> Ray Ray. Yeah, it's like Ray Ray. Yeah. And so it just made it, for me, It it I knew they needed a community that was mm. very supportive that could help them through the process. So, mm. and I realized that while, you know, Carrot, we were, we were the subject matter experts on interviewing for software engineering positions, and we mm-hmm. could offer feedback, which was something mm. that no other company was going to give the students. So mm-hmm. in the process, we thought, not only will we give you the practice interview, but we'll also have that software engineer who's experienced give you feedback on what you did well what you didn't do so well and some things that you might need to do before you take your next interview. And so that was just uh, when I heard students uh, and, and we first started the program uh, at Morehouse and one of the Morehouse men said to me, Miss Portia, I didn't realize that I was that smart until you (laughs) came here and you shared with me that I was just as smart as anybody else. That they could do the the problems on the board. That we could talk about what are some, you know, that every everything isn't an exact science. So mm-hmm. it isn't a, a a pat answer for everything. That you can go around the loop and still find the right the right answer to it. And so for me to hear that mm-hmm. from someone just um, gave me the determination that I wanted this to be even broader. And so being mm-hmm. able to expand, you know, to first start it, uh, you know, we we did the, I say, a pilot at, at mm-hmm. Morehouse, and we really started the program at Howard University uh, in 2020, the fall of 2020, and expanded it to, to uh, Morehouse that same semester as well. It just, I realized also that students were saying, Ms. Portia, I have this opportunity, but, um, you know, I've got a couple of opportunities. How do I do this? And mm-hmm. I talked to them about negotiations mm-hmm. and they were just, fa- they thought, what do you mean I can negotiate? Wow. Because they didn't know, because that's not something that the professors are talking to them about. That they're, they're not equipped to, because they haven't been in the corporate world. They don't know anything about negotiations. So I realized that there were so many different avenues or workshops that we could create for the students who are a part of the program that they really needed in order to become the best they could be as a software, as a new talent in uh, the tech industry as software engineers. Wow. That's amazing. Like mm-hmm. I'm just thinking back to my, um, cause I've have done coding programming interviews <laughs> and technical interviews and like, it is so scary. And to be able to mm-hmm. actually like practice it and, you know, in a comfortable environment where mm-hmm. you can feel like, okay, my actual talent can shine through right, and not right. um, my anxiety is shining through about this scenario. Because oftentimes I just, from my experience, the person who interviewed me, they interviewed me like they didn't want to be there. And I'm like, wait, are you a hostage? Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because they were asking the questions. Uh, hostage? They sounded like they were just very rough with the answers. Like, okay, here's the blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, well, are we assuming this? Are we assuming that? Just just, just say something. Like, he was very just not nice about the things. And if I didn't know who I was, I might have been someone who, you know, mm-hmm. didn't perform well there. But I'm just like, what in the world crawled up his behind today? Right. But yeah. all of that is like, but, you know, having just you know, 
community, having network, having, mm-hmm. you know, other things, you know, help me to su- succeed. But like, if that was your first technical interview and people were acting like that, like, it's just. At, and that's why we, we were so big on saying that, you know, practice makes progress. And mm. then what we found is that when students are doing in the access gap survey, that when they do more than three practice interviews, yeah. mm-hmm. that 77% of the people feel a lot more comfortable yeah, you know, and it helps them feel more confident in their mm-hmm. ability to be successful in an interview. And sometimes yeah. it's that confidence. You know, you may not have the right answer, but you were so confident that someone says, "Hey, this is somebody I would love to have on my team." Yeah. Yeah. So I I have a question just really quickly. So and it's more of like a comment because I want to make sure that mm-hmm. everybody knows what we're talking about here. So Portia, you work at Carrot. Yes. Yes. What is Carrot? At Carrot, we had been a small startup when I first started with the company, when we had less mm-hmm. than 20 people. But now we oh, have yeah. over 150 employees, and we are considered a, a unicorn uh, company. So we actually do first-round interviews for an array of different companies who are hiring mm-hmm. a, a lot of software engineers. So okay. at one point, we were doing, you know, we, were, we, we had only done less than 5,000 interviews, Today, we've done over 200,000 interviews for companies. So we consider ourselves the subject matter experts when it comes to being able to find talent. We don't actually go out and source the talent. So a company will give us talent that is applied Mm -hmm. on, on their website, and we will actually do the interviews and make recommendations as to who they need to fast track in, someone that they need to to consider. Um, and, and those that's that may cool. not be ready yet. Yeah. And so with, with that in mind, and we have a 24-7 staff of software engineers who sometimes work for the big, you know, the big fang companies, sometimes uh, work predominantly for us, but have worked for fang companies that are, mm-hmm. are, are placed all over the world. So we're able to offer interviews 24-7. Because often, Can you tell people what FANG stands for, for people who don't know that acronym? Okay, so FANG stands for uh, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. and all their new and names. And all the new names. <laughs> and all the new names. <laughs> yes, because, and those are some of the, sometimes uh, people are, are seeking to work for those companies, but there are an mm-hmm. array of other companies that are out mm. there that are looking for software engineer in talent oh, yeah. and especially black software engineers and women mm-hmm. uh, because mm-hmm. the, there are companies that are truly committed uh, to, yeah. to saying, I want to change the face of our, our workforce. And we want, mm-hmm. and so carrot as an example can give companies feedback on, mm-hmm. well, we've interviewed all these, these people we put forth, who we thought were the best and the brightest, which can, you know, included women and minorities. And yet when you hired people, you didn't hire the people that we suggested. Mm. So what is happening with that second round inside, you know, uh, behind closed doors right. where you're weeding out uh, other women and, and so it, it absolutely helps other companies recognize, well, wait a second, maybe our interview loop wasn't as diverse as we needed it to be. Maybe we're yeah. having women interview with all men and men are saying, I don't want to work with a girl. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're able to at least give people feedback so that it allows them to make changes so they can become better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So brilliant black minds is literally right up your alley. Absolutely. Yeah. To be able to provide these students with the opportunity to really hone in these skills to yeah. be successful. To be successful. Mm-hmm. To be able to, to go right through that interview uh, and, and do extremely well and to have yeah. the confidence that they need in order to be successful, even on the job. Mm-hmm. Because through our workshops, we also talk about what does it take when you're an intern to get a return mm-hmm. offer as an intern the next year? What, mm-hmm. what do you need to do if you're being hired full time? What do I really need to do the first 90 days on the job? Mm-hmm. Because we, So yeah, how much is the program? The pro- how much the program yes. is complimentary. So it is uh, for, for any of the students. So mm-hmm. the, any student can join. In fact, we're we're opening it up now to any black student nationwide. So we were oh, focused, that's okay. amazing. Yeah, so we were focused on our HBCUs, uh, and we still are. We still are absolutely mm-hmm. committed to the HBCU community. But we also realize that there are, are black students like myself who went to a PWI probably mm. do need help as well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if I were someone who was like, this is up my alley, I need this, how would I get information? Uh, then they can mm-hmm. go out to uh, our website, carrot.com, and look up Brilliant Black Minds. And uh, we have an opportunity for you to apply online. Yeah. They can just Google Brilliant Black Minds, yeah. and it's the first thing that comes yes. up. If they can't pass the Google test, you know. (laughs) Brilliant. That's the first word. So we're going to go if they're capable of finding it. I believe in them. That is awesome. Like while you were saying that, I was just thinking about like you interface with lots of different companies, you know, in the tech space. And also, Catherine, have you seen this as well? Like are people putting their money where their mouth is? Because I feel like, you know, there's so much clamor about diverse this, that like Mm -hmm. people will starve the diverse programs of resources or they Mm -hmm. they mean it on the front end that gets all the press, but not on the back end where they actually hire. So what's your experience there? Either of you. I would say that I've seen it on both sides. I've seen the, the companies that will say we are committed and yet they don't put the, their, their money where their mouth is. And then I've seen the other companies who are saying, we just want to know what we can do differently. And those are the companies that we love to work with. You know, the companies that are, that are open to feedback that are saying, I need to, I need to understand what the process is because I want to make a change and I'm serious mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I haven't really worked in corporate, so maybe that saved me, you know, just an academic. What can I tell you? <laughs> so I don't really think that I've experienced that or seen that with companies. Um, but even like with your research results, like sometimes people will um, say, oh, well, this research, do we really need to be studying this? Mm-hmm. You know, do you ever get that kind of pushback? Uh, no, because I'm at an HBCU where it's kind of valued. <laughs> I'm at Howard. I'm at Howard. So Fair that's enough. essentially, yeah. you know, what they're looking, you know, for us to be able to do to push the, the, the agenda forward. But probably at other PWIs, it might be an issue. Probably. Mm. Yeah. So. It's not at ours. Yeah. Well, that's I nice. I will say that. Okay. That yeah. is nice. There are yeah. a lot of initiatives now in higher education that are really focused on diversifying 
STEM faculty mm-hmm. and they're being really spearheaded by some national organizations like at the Ni- National Science Foundation through their yeah. NSF Includes Award or yeah. through the Association for the Advancement of Sciences or AAAS as mm-hmm. most people refer to them. Um, they have a program called Sea Change that they have been championing for the last couple of years. And so people really want to see us make this turn, right? Like we can't keep saying we don't have people who have the skills when we can see the graduation rates of people with the skills, right? Like we know people are coming into these programs, excelling and doing wonderfully, but then they can't get the job. Hmm. or they can only keep the job for a certain amount of time yeah. or they can't promote or there's no like alternative for them to continue to be successful. So there are barriers. Oh, there's they still are barriers. Right? And a lot of them are around hiring. And I think that's not something that we talk about very often. It's like the, the practices that we have instituted for hiring are not conducive to support people who come from underrepresented backgrounds. Mm. That's not to say that people aren't successful at getting jobs, right? Like we all have jobs, mm-hmm. but <laughs> you know, sometimes we end up creating our own job, our own space because we don't like the process that we have to go through to just be a part of a company that may not appreciate us and our skills. Yeah. So, um, Speaking of that, I think it's even beyond hiring, right? Because then you get hired. Then oh, you, yeah. get into, you get into this context that is completely hostile to you or people like you in very many subtle ways, right? That yep. people might think you're crazy if you point that out. It's like, oh, no, you're reading too much into it, but <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it really is there, right? Yeah, so, it's culture. It is yeah, the culture. So, yeah. yeah, because if the, the culture yeah. isn't welcoming, then you don't feel welcome. If your team is yeah. saying, if a team gives you dog work to do, then mm-hmm. that's not that's not what you wanted. That wasn't the exciting thing about going to that big fame company that you really were interested mm-hmm. in, especially when you yeah. see everybody else being excited or they're working in groups and you're excluded. Mm-hmm. They go to yeah. lunch and they don't ask you if you're interested in going to lunch. I mean, just those subtle things and and feel and mm-hmm. and a person feeling like I don't belong here. And that's yeah, yeah. and and that starts in the interview. Yes, it does. Yes, right? yes, it does. Absolutely. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. what are some like practical takeaways that our listeners might benefit from hearing that each of you have seen, either from the research side of things or even anecdotally from people who've been successful at getting these jobs and these technical interviews? I would say. You know, one of the things is building your confidence, whatever that is, and knowing that and knowing your worth. So it, even looking at what are some of the salaries that people are getting working at a certain company who are a software engineer? I think so many people don't, as I call it, read ahead and know mm-hmm. what what their 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 worth is uh, mm-hmm. at one cup of uh, one. Uh, one group came to our negotiations workshop, another group didn't, went to the same company and there was a $40,000 difference in their salary. Mm-hmm. That is huge. Wow. And nobody would have thought of that had, had oh, I not man. asked them to, to really 
put it on paper as to what company you were going to, what city you're going to, same city, same company, $40,000 difference. That wow. is crazy to me. But if you didn't know that you could negotiate, at, you know, then you're just going to accept whatever someone gave you. And you're, again, yeah. because your parents did not negotiate on their job. If if your, your, your father went to a job and they said it's $26 an hour, it's $26 an hour. There was no negotiation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... Y'all better sign up for this program. That's what yeah. I heard. <laughs> I'm about to yeah. sign up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're, try- we're trying to help people secure the bag, as they say. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yes. Okay, Porsche's for the culture. I see. Yeah. Yes. All right. I think that might be the title, Securing the Technical Bag. Do we have Aww, that? Oh, that is nice. Yeah. That's actually really nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for me, I think that... Um, well, actually, probably that's one of the reasons why CART really works, right? Because if you can think about the fact that already the technical interview is challenging enough, mm-hmm. once you realize how challenging it is, you don't need all the other psychological stuff like impeding your ability to solve the problems or to do the co- write the code and do all of those things. So this is where, you know, being a part of the Brilliant Black Minds program might actually be helpful because by building that skill, level of skill with respect to technical interviews, that's one thing less you have to really be concerned about. Like you can really focus on that. And even if it's challenging, you know, it's, well, the content itself is challenging, but understand that it's not necessarily just about me, right? So you have, being also aware that social identity threat is something that happens or could happen to you as a woman or as a person of color. Because in our study with Carrot, that's what we found, right? Black women double the anxiety when it came to technical interviews. Mm-hmm. I would surmise that it's probably because of, A, that stereotype that concerns us as people of color, but then there's also the gender stereotype that comes, right, with respect mm-hmm. to that in this field yeah. of computer science where there's so few women, that Black women or women of color that are represented. So very often women have that double whammy effect of stereotypes working against them. So being able to understand that perhaps what I am feeling or the anxiety that I'm feeling or this feeling that I'm not good enough, it's just like, it's just a psychological, it's a social thing. It's a social psychological thing that's happening to me. Being able to understand that it's something that I can also overcome because number one, knowing is half the battle, but also in order to kind of take off the evaluative stress. And I'd like to go back to the example that Portia gave, right? Once her supervisor whoever said, I don't care how you perform. As long as you give me this, mm-hmm. the calls, that's going to be fine. That took off the pressure of evaluation. Yep. That's the key right there. It's like, because this be the idea of being evaluated just generates so much stress and anxiety that really impedes your performance. But once that's kind of minimized, then now you're in a position to kind of free up your working memory space to kind of focus on what the situation is. So either you're going to have to do it yourself to lessen the the significance of this evaluation or companies can also build that in their interview space, right? By being able to affirm the candidates, for example, while, you know, find appropriate ways to affirm the candidate and mm-hmm. reduce the focus from evaluation to maybe it just would, you know, see, you know, you get more insights into how you guys solve problems is a way better it's a better way to frame the context or whatever the mm-hmm. task is and saying, 
this is really a cutthroat thing. We only need like five people. So we're going to be the best. We're going to pick the best of the best type of thing. So you can right. actually, even in the interview process, find ways to reframe what this evaluation is about in order to remove that stress or anxiety that comes with evaluation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think your comment about like, you know, either you have to do it yourself. It's not necessarily alone, right? Like yes. we on this podcast talk about self-care mm-hmm. all the time and mm-hmm. how important it is. If you need to go to therapy, go to yeah. therapy, talk yeah. to somebody, find someone that you can commiserate with about the things that you're going through. Yeah. This is not a journey that we have to take alone. Yeah. And anxiety is something that you probably aren't going to just solve right. by reading a book. <laughs> Right. Like you got to do the work and mm-hmm. that work is something that you should do alongside yeah. someone. Not yeah. by yourself. And, and we offer yeah. the imposter so. syndrome is one of our workshops. Okay. So, and, there we so, go. and, and I asked the students, what is it that you need so that mm-hmm. we can bring that to you? Because sometimes we just don't know what the need is out there. Yep. So we're, mm-hmm. we're open to, to, you know, creating different workshops because I, I have people that I call FOPs that are part of the program that are friends of Porsches. <laughs> yes. I was waiting yeah. for it. Can yeah. I be an FOP? Because this is fire. This program is, I feel like, what so many of us needed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just astounded because I had no idea, one, that this type of work was being done at Carrot because this is this is a huge, huge, huge issue. And, you know, it's been something that's been a national topic, you know, mm-hmm. of how to get more people into these. And you all are like, look, here is the practical thing. Here is where the gap is. We are addressing the gap. And, you know, I wonder also, like, does, do, will you offer support, like, further into their time there? Like, you, sp- you spoke about, like, what to do in the first 90 days. Like, will they well, and maintain and, and I will tell that? you, well, I, I'll, I'll take a step back for just a moment because we made a commitment to offer a million dollars worth of interviews after uh, and our commitment to the black community uh, mm-hmm. when George Floyd was murdered. And, oh, wow. and Carrot has continued to say, we want to make, we want to continue to invest in the black community uh, mm-hmm. year after year. So I, I really feel, I feel very fortunate to work for a company that has that strong of a commitment, especially yeah. knowing that our community is trying to get into tech we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're, and, and that we have a way to, to give people. We're, we don't want a handout. We just want a right. handout. Mm-hmm. You know, we just mm-hmm. we just want the opportunity more than anything else. And so mm-hmm. with with our workshops and FOPs and carrot support, <laughs> we're going to be able to hopefully change the trajectory of how many people are able to get into tech and be successful. Now, those people who have graduated and moved on, I want those same people to come back and be software engineering, uh, our interview engineers. I want them to get back and they, they will automatically be a FOP. So I want them to also lead workshops. So I think that it is going to be something that we can continue to grow, whether we continue to call it. And we know that it's not just, you know, black students who need the help, but it's also, you know, it's also Latino students who need the help, black and brown, uh, that are Mm -hmm. sometimes marginalized in the tech space. 
So, um, mm-hmm. you know, who knows? It may be uh, uh, brilliant, uh, not only brilliant Black minds, but brilliant Latino minds or just brilliant mm-hmm. minds, period. Uh, brilliant minds, period. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and you know who yeah. you are. It's like, right. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that we have to, especially as Black people, not feel as if we don't belong in a in a certain group. We need to go where there is help being given and not feel like, oh, I don't know whether I need it or I don't feel like I need it because I already have a one job offer. Well, guess what? What happens if something happens to that offer or what happens if something happens on that job your first mm-hmm. 90 days and you don't have a job anymore? Then you need to be yeah. able to get another job and you, yeah. you're going yep. to have to interview. And so the, the, the skill of interviewing is never going to go away, no matter where you are in your career trajectory. That's real. Mm. That is real. Mm. That is so you might real. Well get and it down pat while you're young, <laughs> while, you, while you're that tree. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Get it while it's young yeah. and straight. Yeah. I, I like it. it. I like yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So. So on that note, um, we love to provide our listeners with the opportunity to find you online and yeah. follow you. And so if you could share with us your social media or mm-hmm. a website to connect with you, that would be great. All right. Like right now? Who, yeah, yeah. Who wants to go for it? And let us know who you are so they can connect okay. your voice with your. Okay. Like, um, so you can find me. I don't tweet that much, but if you tweet me, I'll tweet you back. <laughs> <laughs> At Dr. K Picho, P-I-C-H-O. That's my Twitter handle, at Dr. K Picho. Um, but you can also see some of the research I'm doing and, you know, look at the, my lab members and what they're doing at riselab.us. So RISE Research in STEM Ed, R-I-S-E, lab, just one, one word, dot U-S. Fancy. Yeah, thank you. All thank right. you. <laughs> And Portia, how can they find well, you? You can find me either by going out to uh, to carrot.com uh, or find me at Portia at carrot.com. That would be okay. the way to find me. And, and well, carrot is K-A-R-A-T. And also you can find me on LinkedIn. Oh, yeah. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. Just always mm-hmm. Also, yeah. we'll link all of these in the actual episode page for sure. this. So anyone listening who's like, I didn't get all that, just look at the episode page, modernfigurespodcast.com, and mm-hmm. all of these will be linked there. Awesome. Right. Thank you both so much. Yes. I'm so glad. I am filled with joy. I think this is wonderful. Yes. And I know it'll be valuable for our listeners to have this perspective about the hiring process, about interviewing, mm-hmm. and just your journeys to be here. So yeah. thank you. Thank you so thank much. You for inviting us. Thank yeah. you so much. More to come. More to come from both of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As always, you can find us on our website, modernfigurespodcast.com. Send your questions to ask us at modernfigurespodcast.com. And follow us on Twitter. Kyla is at Dr. Underscore Kyla, and I am at Jeremy Waysom. Visit modernfiguresinc.com to learn more about our nonprofit organization aimed at promoting and engaging with women and girls interested in science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and of course, computing. Until next time, stay moisturized, hydrated, mind your business. 
and protect your peace.